So the month of October 2017 marks the 500th anniversary of what historians have called the Protestant Reformation. In 1517, in October, there was a 34-year-old Catholic monk who had become very unsettled in his spirit about his own spiritual journey, and he was going through a radical transformation spiritually as well as theologically. And as he looked around his world, what Martin Luther saw was a, a gross discrepancy between what he read in Scripture and what the church was practicing. And so Luther began to speak up, and he began to say, uh, we have some problems that we need to address. We have some erroneous teaching, uh, which leads to uh, living in a way that doesn't follow Scripture, uh, and we need to get back to our scriptural basis. That was kind of in, in a very short a microcosm, what he was after. And so as we hit the 500th anniversary this year, we want to take a look at Martin Luther's uh, theology, what he was uh, concerned about, what he wanted to address. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to take a very brief journey uh, through the Reformation's main teaching. We're going to look at what's called the five solas, the five pieces of, of teaching that are the very most important. Now, when you leave this morning, uh, you may recall that Luther, uh, on, in 1570, nailed 95 theses on the Wittenberg door, 95 observations that he had with the church at that time that he felt need to be addressed. So we spared no expense. We flew the Wittenberg door in. We borrowed it. We told him we'd bring it back. There's an exact size replication of it in the atrium today. It's actually made out of foam. You can pick it up with one hand. Please don't pick it up. But after the service, you'll, you'll know a little bit more about what was important, not only to Luther, but why God had laid that on his heart and what God was doing within his church. So if you want to stop by and read some of those theses, you can on your way out. But for our teaching time this morning, we're going to look at the five solas. Now, there's a couple ways we could have done this. We could have had one guy talk about all five, uh, and that's normally what we do around here. There's one person that typically leads the teaching time, uh, and that would have been fine. I mean, I say that. I'm the guy that would have led it. I guess it would have been okay, um, but another way to do it was to really think about what the Reformation meant. What the Reformation meant was getting back to Scripture, all of Scripture, which says people from every tribe, every language, Every nationality are part of the kingdom of God. So what we decided to do, instead of have one person offer all five, is to have five people talk about one each. We're going to do a little bit different. We're going to, you're going to hear uh, a little bit of teaching, and then we're going to sing and worship together. And then you're going to hear a little bit more teaching, and then we're going to sing and worship together as we walk through the five solas of the Reformation. And Tom Warner's going to kick us off. Good morning. I'm Tom Werner. I'm one of the elders here at Green Tree, and I'm happy to be with you this morning. I'm going to talk for a little bit about Scripture. Our first of the five solas of the Reformation is sola scriptura, or Scripture alone. Tom has told you that in 1517, Martin Luther challenged the Catholic Church by posting the 95 Theses. And the Catholic Church fought back against Luther. Four years later, Luther was called to give an account to justify himself at the Diet of Worms. 
And some of you just said, did he say diet of worms? Yeah, that's what I said. It's kind of a funny name, isn't it? It sounds like a weight loss program gone awry. <laughs> but a diet is an old-fashioned word for a meeting. And the place where this meeting took place was Worms, Germany. So this meeting was the diet of worms. At the meeting, Luther was commanded to recant to take back his writings. And at issue was the question, what is my authority? You can see the moment of crisis at the Diet of Worms represented in this picture. Luther stands accused of heresy before church officials and the emperors, and the emperor and his writings are stacked up so that he'll know what it is that he has to recant, what he has to take back. Luther surely knew that his life was at stake. Heresy is having opinions that are ungodly and in error and dangerous. And the penalty for heresy was death. Luther asked for a day to think and pray before he responded to the charges. And he surely must have been tempted to give in to save his life. But when the meeting reconvened, here is what Luther said. He said, Pope's heir and counsel's heir, unless I am convinced by scripture and clear reason, I cannot recant. Thus, Luther proclaimed the authority of scripture over the pope and the church and all else. Now, this is personal to me because when I was 20 years old, I had to make my own evaluation of scripture. That summer, I heard the gospel for the very first time, and I became a Christian and within several weeks, I started my fall classes, which included religion classes that I'd signed up for in the previous spring. And when I started to go to my religion classes, I found that my professors did not believe too much of anything about the Bible. They doubted the authorship of the scriptures. They doubted whether Jesus had said the things that had been attributed to him. They doubted the miracles, and they did not believe in the resurrection. So I had a decision to make fairly quickly. Would I accept the scriptures as reliable and as my sole authority for life, or should I leave my new faith behind? I think that every Christian, indeed every person, has to decide who or what is their authority in life. What voice will I listen to? Who tells me how I will treat people? What I'll do with my studies and my work? What kind of person I will marry? How will I spend my time and my money? Like Martin Luther, I wrestled with these questions, and like Luther, I decided that my authority in life would be Scripture. So how should we, how should any of us, consider this question of authority in life? I think a good place to start is with what the Bible has to say about itself. So first, the Bible says that Scripture is inspired by God. The Bible was written over a 1,500-year span. It was written by 40 authors, including shepherds, fishermen, a physician, poets, kings. It was written on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. It was written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. But despite the diversity of origin, the 66 books of the Bible tell one central unfolding story, 
And that is God's redemption of humankind through the work of Jesus Christ. How can we explain this unity and diversity? In human terms, this is impossible. It could only happen by the inspiration of God. Secondly, the Bible claims to be effective in our lives. The Bible claims that it works in our hearts to achieve God's purposes. The scripture penetrates, we're told, into the soul and into the spirit, and it changes our thoughts and our hearts. And I am a person who has been changed by scripture. Third, the Bible says that scripture is perfect for what we need. The psalmist describes scripture like this. The law of the Lord is perfect. It refreshes the weary soul. The Bible is trustworthy. It makes us wise. It gives us joy. It is more precious than gold, and it is sweet, sweeter than honey. Through the Bible, I have discovered what is necessary to live a satisfying life. So what about us? What is our authority for our faith and our practice? Martin Luther said that our authority is scripture alone. And I think that he got it right. Gospel of Luke chapter 18, 10 through 14. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Not an extortioner, not a swindler, not an adulterer, or even like that tax collector. I give I, I, I give out of what I have. I tithe. Uh, I give alms. I fast twice a week. But the tax collector, he, he couldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven. But he stood afar back and he beat his chest and he cried, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Sola fide is the idea that we are saved or we are justified by faith alone. It's the idea that we are declared righteous. We are given a legal standing that puts us in right status with God. In Isaiah chapter 64, uh, verse 6, it talks about our righteousness being like, like filthy rags. If, you, if you'll bear with me. The idea is that, and, and the, the more literal rendering of that, of, that, of that phrase is when a woman's on her menstrual cycle, she has rags that she wraps around herself. And so as she's going about, when, she's, when, when, when they have, those rags have served their purpose, if you will, she takes them off, she discards them. Here's the question, and it's not rhetorical. Tell me, how much value do those rags have after they've been used? It's not rhetorical. How much value do those rags have after they've been used? None. And that is your righteousness. 
That is my righteousness. That's anything we think that we bring. Well, we're gonna we're gonna help God out. We're gonna bribe God. We're gonna hustle God. I'm gonna show him, well, Lord, you know, I do this, I do that, plus what you do, and together we're okay. That's not the gospel. Sola fide says we are justified. We are made right by faith alone, with nothing else helping, nothing else adding. In order for that tax collector to be justified, the first thing he had to understand was that nothing that I bring has any merit or any worth or any value. And if you're going to be justified, you must start there. The second thing he had to understand was that if there's going to be any justification, if there's going to be anything made right, if there's going to be a a, a fixing It must start from above. It cannot start from within. The Bible says that God made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us that we might be made in him the righteousness of God. What God is doing is he is setting us right. There's, a, there's, a, there's an old football announcer, uh, Keith Richards, and he'd talk about how to win football games. And one of the things he would say is, uh, when, when, you, when you get in doubt, you dance with the girl that brung you. <laughs> what that means is the same way that you started, you keep on doing that. If you run the ball, you run the ball. If you pass the ball, you pass the ball. You don't switch up. The danger, brothers and sisters, is that we will think that Okay, well, I know that I I got saved because of faith or because I made a profession or because I made a decision, not even realizing that even the gift of faith is a gift that God gives to us. And then what we'll do is when we sin, well, maybe it's just me. When I let me like speak for you all. When I sin. I think, well, you know, I need to feel bad about myself for a little while first. And then I need to, and then after I've soaked enough, then I come to the Lord and I say, well, Lord, you know, I, I was wrong and I'm sorry and, and forgive me. And so uh, nobody else, anybody else do that? Nobody else? Nobody else does that? Okay. Well, I got, I got, I got seven people, the, the eight of us. Just that eight, eight is enough. Ain't that what it's Eight is enough. And so, but what we need to understand. What you have to understand, what I have to understand, is that the same power that saved you, that that faith alone, once you are justified, he didn't justify you for everything you do up until you mess up again. That's not eternal life. That's life up until you mess up again. Eternal life is just that. And once you've been declared righteous, nothing you do. Nothing anyone else does can separate you because you are his. The Bible says in 2 Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. And if or since you are Christ, for those of you who are in union with Christ, who have accepted him, who have taken 
his righteousness and given him your filthy rags. You are secure. You are justified forever. As the praise team comes, they're going to sing a song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Understand, it's not about your faithfulness. This is the object of faith. And the object of faith, faith is only as strong as the object in which it is placed. We place our faith, faith alone in Christ. And so we sing about his faithfulness. Morning by morning, the Bible says in Hebrews, he liveth evermore to make intercession for the saints. Solar fide, by faith alone. You stand.
sola gratia, by faith alone. By, I did this first service, too. <laughs> Book, you, you got in my head so much. Two times in a row, I've screwed it up. By grace alone. What a message. By grace alone. You see, the, the Catholic Church's teaching was that we are saved by grace, but over a period of time, corruption began to infiltrate the church's teaching, and the, the practice became that people could pay money and could free souls of their condemned relatives from purgatory, and they could, in, in effect, buy their own escape from purgatory in advance by paying indulgences of the church. And Martin Luther, Martin Luther looked at this practice and said, this is not what Scripture teaches. This is not what God intended. Instead, the message is much greater than that. It's, it's much more uplifting than that. It's much more hopeful than that. I've been involved in the hiring process at Westminster Christian Academy for more than 30 years. And every single time we interview somebody for a job, we ask them how they became a Christian and tell us your story of their life in Christ. And when they do, on occasion, someone will tell a story something like this. He or she will say that, well, I, I really don't have a very interesting testimony because I became a Christian as a young child through a vacation Bible school or I prayed with my parents one night right before I went to bed. And they say that apologetically as if they, they almost wish they'd been a drug lord or a gang leader. And that would, be, that would have been a, a better story to tell. But I think when they say that, they really miss the critical truth about our souls, about our human condition. And it's something that Paul reveals to us very clearly in Ephesians 2 when he says this. God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. We're dead in our transgressions. We're dead. We can do nothing to affect our salvation. We are not equal partners with God in the process. We are helpless. Dead men, dead women can do nothing. And what Paul is saying is there is a sentence of death hanging over all of our heads, which we are powerless to do anything anything about but God has intervened he's made us alive and then those unbelievable words of truth by grace you've been saved by his gift of kindness by his love by his mercy and he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus seated us seated us with him in heavenly places because of his grace he takes unworthy men and women, sinners, in rebellion against him and says, I want you to sit with me. I want you to enter into my heavenly throne and sit with me and be my sons and daughters. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we're still sinners, while, we're, while we were still in active rebellion and defiance against him, he says, come and be part of my family. And then the incredible, incredible words of Romans 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift. The gift. We like to make that redundant and say free gift. I never understood that redundancy. A gift says, this is yours. I'm giving this to you. And that's what God has done. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We have nothing to boast about. Again, we're not co-equal partners. We're not, we're not even partners. God, in his infinite mercy and kindness, says to us, come. Be a part of my, my kingdom. Be part of my work because of my grace. 
which pronounces that you are free from the power of sin. You are made alive. The death sentence is waived. I have taken it for you. That is God's grace. And that's what Martin Luther wanted to remind us of. By grace alone. By grace alone. The last sentence in the Bible is a reminder of that. This is God almost saying to us, okay, you've read my entire book. Remember this. Revelation twenty two twenty one, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. He begins with grace. He ends with grace. Grace alone. Hello. So my name is Mallory, and I have the tremendous blessing of working with the middle school and high school students here at Green Tree. And about two weeks ago in Sunday school, I beat the middle school students in naming the books of the Old Testament. And I feel pretty good about that because there's not many things I can beat the middle school students in anymore. Um, so it was a big success day for Mal. Um, but if I'm being real and honest with you all, there's something very kind of ugly at the back of that. Um, something kind of that I don't really want to talk about, but has been haunting my life for as long as I can remember. And that is that I still feel the immense need to prove myself. I have built my life on these ideas of being good at things, having other people like me, and proving that I'm spiritually with it, right? And I'm hungry, right? Hungry to answer this question of, am I good enough? Am I good enough? What more can I do to be good enough? And I love where we meet Luther in this Reformation story. You have a defeated perfectionist, a man so hungry for God's righteousness that when he goes to confession, he is out confessing his confessors. He is going through the minutia of every sin, from every misdeed, from every misact, from every wrong thought, from every wrong turn of his heart, because he doesn't want to miss a single thing. And his confessors, they mock him. They say, oh, Luther, you're blowing things out of proportion. You're making things up. Go sin a real sin. So the very people who are supposed to be helping him find his plan for salvation, his spiritual whole 30, he is, in fact, <laughs> being mocked. And it isn't until he studies Romans that the freedom of the gospel sets him free because, because in reading it, he realizes that it is not him actively pursuing righteousness, but him in passivity receiving God's righteousness through the work of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. It is Jesus Christ plus nothing that brings you the freedom you are searching for. It is Jesus Christ plus nothing that is going to fill that hole in our hearts. While we were waging war against God, while we were trying to cover up for our weaknesses, while we were trying to micromanage our fears and our failures, at the right time, Christ came and died for you and I that we might receive God's righteousness. A couple years ago, I was doing a spiritual analysis in my own heart, and I had this kind of picture pop into my mind. And it was as if when I approached the throne of Jesus, King Jesus, I am so fixated on what I lay at his feet. I was so concentrated on my contribution to the kingdom that I was so worried about what I would lay at the feet of the throne. And it was as if Jesus was saying to me, 
Look up. Look up and know my face. You see, we get the best family situation in the world because of the work of Jesus Christ. We are called into a face-to-face relationship with the King of Kings because of the work of Jesus Christ. And we don't have to pass some spiritual ACT. We don't have to go through church protocol with lines as long as Disneyland. But no, I have learned that it is not that I need to know more about Jesus, have a thoroughly defined theology and a well-defined doctrine. But my growth as a Christian has come from knowing that every day I need Jesus more. And it is my hope and prayer, brothers and sisters, that we can name and recognize that we have a deep need for Jesus and that it is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone that can truly and completely satisfy and set us free. Will you stand with us again?
The gift that God gave the church uh, through Martin Luther and through the, the other men and women of the Reformation is the gift that we need most to understand truly what it means to be in relationship with God and the, the true teaching of Scripture that points us to the fact that it is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. How desperately do we need that truth to be real in our lives? How long will it be before we stop striving and replacing the gospel with something other uh, that includes our works, with it, which, as Book said, were filthy rags? It was interesting in the first service when Mallory started talking about her victory over the middle school girls. Uh, I, uh, my immediate thought was, I bet I could do it faster than Mallory. And I actually know all the books of the Bible. I know all 66 of them, and I have said them all in 18 seconds. Uh, and, and that's what I'm going to stand before God, and I'm going to replace the cross of Jesus with that, right? <laughs> well, God, I should get into heaven because I can say all 66 books of the Bible in 18 seconds, right? And, <laughs> and we wonder how much this needs to be pounded into our heads day in and day out, uh, week in and week out. What's the culmination of these four solas? Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. If it is not to God, be the glory alone. I'm not sure what it should be. Sola Deo Gloria. God, you alone receive the glory and the worship. You alone are the one who saves. You alone are the one who has the power to redeem and to, and to bring my uh, rebellious and, and, and angry and uh, antagonistic heart into joyful submission to your grace and your compassion through faith. This was not new to Luther, was not new to the church, has been around for thousands of years. The psalmist speaks of this reality in Psalm 98. And he says, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. That's a great word. When you think of marvelous, what comes across your mind? It's not an everyday average occurrence, right? For me, marvelous will be someday while I'm still alive, the Blues winning the Stanley Cup. That will be a marvelous moment. I don't need another World Series. Nothing against the Cardinals. I just need one Stanley Cup. And, and as I watch them play, that would be marvelous, right? It's not an average everyday occurrence. What has God done 
That is so marvelous that we actually ought to sit down. You guys ought to sit down and start composing new songs over, right? What is that? His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Not his salvation as if he needed salvation, but the salvation that he wanted to offer you and offer me and our brokenness and our rebellion. That's what he has done. And notice he's already worked it. It's already complete in the mind of God. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nation. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. That's why we, we wanted to have as much, uh, to kind of use a phrase, this word that's maybe been worn out a little bit, as much diversity as possible. Men and women, white and black, teaching this morning because we want to remember how broad-ranging the grace and the mercy of God is. No human being has ever been able to unite this world. No human being's ever been able to unite the city of Kirkwood. I mean, don't even take it outside of, of our own municipality. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can break down those kinds of hostile barriers. The salvation of God has done this, and he has put it on display for all of the world to see. Therefore, to God alone be the glory. My response, your response, the response of any disciple of Jesus ought to be a life of praise, a life of worship, a life of resting in that grace through faith, of allowing Jesus to be enough for us instead of trying to replace it with, with some futile effort on our own part. And so when we come to the conclusion of Scripture, Scott's already alluded to it this morning, but when we come to the last book of the Bible in Revelation, we're, we're, we're uh, shown many, many scenes uh, of, of wonderful beauty and grandeur, but probably none more spectacular than the scene that we see in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, where we actually are, are given a vision of the history of the worship of God from the creation of the world until the second coming of Christ. And I've, I've boiled it way down into just one page on the screen. This is a summation of what we see. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was, is, and was, and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power and then turning our attention to Jesus. Worthy are you, for you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory forever and ever. The picture of the worship of God is I believe what Luther and the other reformers had in their minds when they came to the conclusion of the matter. The reason Luther said, my life is forfeit, do what you have, I have to stand here, was because he knew that he must give glory to God for what God had done for him. The fact that God has given us his scripture, he's given us his living word that's discernible for all to understand, for all to trust, that he's done this through his grace, because he's compassionate to people like you and like me who have turned our backs on him and, and need grace. And if it is a grace, we are lost for all of eternity. And his book said he's also given us the gift of faith. He's made our hearts alive and given us the ability to trust in him and to rest in Christ alone. That's really what worship ultimately is, is it's resting in Christ. I think one of the ways that Satan uh, has uh, effectively, in, in, a, in a small way, attacked the church of Jesus 
at least in our generation, is uh, Sunday's no longer different than any other day of the week. We don't rest very well anymore. I'll speak for America. In the United States, we have a hard time slowing down. We have a hard time just stopping everything and kind of closing the doors and saying it's time to rest. And I think that's true spiritually and theologically as well. It's difficult to rest in Christ alone. It's difficult to allow Jesus to be Jesus and me to be me, which means I need his grace and I need his mercy and I need his compassion. But when that resting occurs, the worship of my heart springs forth. I have the opportunity to truly celebrate the gift and the mercy that is mine in Christ Jesus. James Montgomery Boyce uh, summed these thoughts up. He was the pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, one of the oldest Presbyterian churches in the United States. Uh, And while he was the pastor there, he was talking about this notion of by grace alone, through faith alone, and and Christ alone. And I want to wrap up my time this morning with a quote uh, from Boyce on this topic. He asks asks and answers a series of questions. Why is man saved? It is not because of anything in men and women themselves, but because of God's grace. It is because God has elected us to it. He has predestined his people to salvation from before the foundation of the world. How is man saved? The answer is by salvation, excuse me, the answer is by the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus, the very Son of God. We could not save ourselves, but God saved us through the vicarious atoning death of Jesus Christ. By what power are we brought to faith in Jesus? The answer is by the power of the Holy Spirit, through what theologians call effectual calling. God's call quickens, it makes alive, it gives us new life. How can we become holy? Holiness is not something that originates in us, it is achieved, or is achieved by us, or is sustained by us. It is due to God's joining us to Jesus so that we have become different persons than we were before he did it. We have died to sin and have been made alive to righteousness. Now there is no direction for us to go in the Christian life but forward. Where are we headed? Answer, to heaven, because Jesus is preparing a place for us. How can we be sure of arriving? It is because God, who began the work of our salvation, will continue it until we do. God never begins the work that he does without eventually bringing it to a happy and complete conclusion. To God alone be the glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. Will you stand and join us in singing A Mighty Fortress is Our God? Think about the words of this song. When you sing it, Martin Luther wrote it. So we've talked a lot about him this morning. And as you praise and worship, think about him and um, these words.
Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. Uh, our prayer is that you would have an encounter with the Lord Jesus, and I believe that uh, that has and is and will continue to happen. Our prayer team and our Stephen minister is always right over there. If we can pray for you about anything, if you want to speak with somebody about any issues in your life, feel free to just uh, come on up here after the service, and they'll be there waiting for you. Remember the Wittenberg door, or facsimile thereof, is out in the, uh, in the atrium. Take a look at some of the things that Luther wrote and, uh, and spoke to in those uh, writings. And then also in the atrium this morning, there's a sign-up table for the harvest party. I just want to give a quick reminder that in a couple of weeks uh, on that Thursday evening when the Kirkwood Walk takes place, we'll have about a thousand of our neighbors come through our parking lot. And it's a wonderful chance for us to kind of be the hands and feet of Jesus for that evening for a lot of children and a lot of, a lot of families. So we need contributions of time and of candy. So when you go through the atrium, do us a favor and sign up to help out just a little bit. Now receive the Lord's benediction, which I gladly offer to you in his name. And now to the God of grace, of mercy, and peace, the God of scripture, who calls us to faith alone, by his grace alone, in Christ alone. To him be glory forever and ever, and may he be glorified in our lives until the day we see him face to face. Amen. The Lord bless you. Go in peace. Amen.